Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to stay on top of the latest news from China with our free daily email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, and of course, at the website itself, subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined from Nashville, Tennessee, by the notorious Jin Yumi, Mr. Jeremy Goldcorn. Greet the people, Jeremy. Hey, people. Hey, Kaiser. How are you doing? I'm well, man. Are you enjoying your vacation? I am very much. It's very, I'm actually at home. It's kind of a staycation because my parents are in town visiting. I haven't seen them a long time. Because it's the first uh, time I've ever heard you use one of these idiotic American uh, neologisms like staycation. But staycation, I, it, 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 it suits they're you well. getting to me. They're getting to me. The oh, Americans good, good, yeah. are. Yeah. Uh, are you nervous about leaving the newsletter in my hands? I haven't uh, utterly ruined so f- it, have I? So far, it's been great, Kaiser. So far, it's been great. You, <laughs> okay. you, you managed to no- avoid any cheesiness and, you know, very good. I approve. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll slather on some cheese today. Anyway, today uh, we are talking to Michael Bristow, who's Asia-Pacific editor for the BBC World Service. Uh, Michael was stationed in Beijing from 2005 to 2013, and he's written a book that Jeremy and I have both read. It's called China in Drag. Travels with a Crossdresser, in which Michael recounts his time in China, his travels, his reporting, and his myriad experiences through the prism of his relationship with his Chinese teacher, who is referred to throughout the book for reasons we're going to get into, simply as the teacher. The teacher is a Beijinger, and he's a really sensitive and observant man, very educated man. He's also a transvestite. So today we're going to talk to Michael about cross-dressing in China and about notions of gender, uh, not because that's really what this book is all about, but because, you know, that's its most conspicuous feature. Michael Bristow, welcome to Seneca. Hi, how are you doing? We're great, man. How are you? Good. It's late here in uh, London, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm all well. Michael, I'd like to get straight to the story in your book that introduces the teacher and uh, really is the reason for, for its name, China in Drag. Can you tell us why you decided to travel around China with your teacher, and what happened on the first night of your trip? Well, the fact that he's a cross-dresser came as a complete surprise to me. I decided long before I found out that information that I was going to write a book about him. And that's because, like many correspondents who spend time in China, I wanted to write something which went slightly beyond the day-to-day news agenda, the kind of the uh, online, the TV and the kind of radio reports that we churn out daily as as reporters um, wherever we're stationed. Uh, and I wanted to say something a little bit more profound. And for some time, I'd cast around for a subject, wondered what I wanted to talk about. And then kind of suddenly I realised over, well, over a period of kind of months, I think, that, you know, the person who sat opposite me twice a week to teach me Chinese was actually, had come to 
for my to my mind, personified China. He was born just two years after the Chinese Communist Party came to power. Uh, and his victories and disappointments throughout his life were mirrored by the country's own uh, ups and downs. So in the Cultural Revolution, he stopped going to school. He was sent down into the countryside, uh, um, like many and millions and millions of other uh, uh, young people. So uh, his experiences absolutely mirrored his countries. And and also, he's quite an ordinary person. He hasn't done anything particular. He hasn't held high office. He hasn't been a kind of powerful business person. Uh, but he is a, an educated, thoughtful person. Uh, and I thought by reflecting his life, I could kind of reach out to kind of people and let them know about ordinary Chinese folk because that's one of the things I found difficult as a journalist is trying to kind of convey in short reports to people outside China exactly what it was like to be Chinese and, and live in China. So how did you decide on the trip and, you know, tell us about the first night? Yeah, how did you decide, for example, I mean, that it was going to take the form of a sort of travelogue? Well, like lots of things in China, I used to sit as a journalist when I first went to China and I used to try and call people on the telephone and you would never be able to get through to people or they'd kind of say they'd call you back, they'd never call you back. You'd have to send a fax with a list of questions on. Quite a lot of the time as a journalist, you'd ring kind of numbers and, and nobody would even bother to pick up the telephone at the other end. It was a really frustrating um, experience. So quite early on, I realised like all good reports, I suppose, you've got to go out and you've got to actually see things for yourself because unless you do that in China, you're going to find out absolutely zero. So as well as kind of retelling the story of this gentleman's life, I wanted to travel around to some of the places that had been associated with his life and uh, some of the places which he wanted to show me, which illustrated some of the things he wanted to talk to me about. Because by doing that, we could have material for the book we could spend time together I could get to know him a little bit more uh, and we could see things you know as they unfolded he could tell me his story he could show me his story as well as tell me it and so that first trip away we went we we're going down to Changsha he wanted me to he wanted himself to go and see Mao Zedong's uh, birthplace because Mao had played such a pivotal part in his life as he did in many Chinese people's lives. So he wanted to go down um, to um, Mao's hometown. So we went to Changsha, the city of Changsha. And on this first night, we went into the hotel uh, lobby. And um, there in the lobby, I thought, well, are we going to share a room? Or are we going to get one each? And in the end, I decided we'd get one each. And so we went to our respective rooms and he decided, or we decided to meet later on that evening for dinner. So at eight o'clock, I came out of my hotel room, I closed the door and I, I looked down the corridor towards the lifts and there, standing next to the lift, waiting to go down, was my teacher. But it took me a little while to work out what was different about him. <laughs> he was, it was, I kind of recognised the face, I didn't recognise the get-up and there he was wearing women's clothes he had he had trousers on but they were kind of silky three-quarter length trousers he had a, a very tight t-shirt a padded bra uh, he had uh, makeup uh, eyeliner um everything in a it. wig presumably he yeah. didn't have a wig at that point he didn't have a ah. wig he was he was just wearing his he just had his normal hair and he kind of just sort of like looked at me saw me walking towards him and he kind of wafted a hand uh, uh, you know, down towards his clothes. And he said, well, you don't mind, do you? 
At which point I said, no, I, I don't mind, but, you know, maybe we ought to talk about it. So that's, that's how he kind of let me know he was a cross-dresser. <laughs> and so did you have no idea up until the, the, this point, or, or were there signs? I mean, you talk in the book how you might have been able to know uh, in hindsight. Now I think about it, I think of Donald Rumsfeld. I don't know if you remember a few years ago, he got into all kinds of linguistic difficulties when he talked the about... Known the known knowns and the, the, knowns the unknown. And the unknown knowns and the um, uh, unknown unknowns. I realised afterwards that actually that the teacher's uh, secret was a a known unknown. So uh, in the previous five years when I'd known him, I had seen uh, certain signs. So, for example, he would turn up at our lessons occasionally um, in the winter and he would have kind of what I thought at first was lipstick. Then I thought, no. You guys have lived in Beijing. You know it gets very dry in the winter. You wear, you use face cream and lip balm. I thought he was just wearing a colourful lip balm. It sounds very naive, I know. Um, and he would sometimes turn up uh, with tight T-shirts on or occasionally very elaborate jewellery. On one particular occasion, he went through a very painful facelift. And I kind of wondered, you know, why... He'd gone through the facelift in the first place. I didn't want to push him too much because, you know, people have limits. There's limits to all friendships. And I thought that perhaps he would tell me in time. So looking back, there were signs, but I hadn't just picked them up, which I was quite annoyed about with myself for, because obviously as a journalist, you're supposed to be quite observant, supposed to notice things which are going on around you. And I hadn't been looking properly at the, the person who was sitting opposite me twice a week. So let's freeze frame there with you standing there, maybe a little bit agog at uh, in, in in the hallway in front of the lift in this hotel in Changsha and, and, and jump backward uh, and do a little flashback. Uh, you made your way to China. How did you get interested in China? You grew up in, what, York? Is that right? Sorry, I'm yeah, in Yorkshire. Right. Yeah, in a small oh, village okay. in, in Yorkshire in the north of England. I really went on holiday. We hadn't much been uh, outside the kind of my immediate area before I went to university in Newcastle, which is a city in the north of England. Um, once there, we was, know the beer. Yeah, yeah Newcastle Brown Ale. Yeah, I, I drank quite a lot of it whilst I was up there. Um, and I did something called Politics in East Asian Studies. It was a, a course for people who wanted to study politics but wanted to study the politics of countries very different to our own. It also gave you a chance to travel abroad uh, for a year and, and that's primarily why I took it. I had no interest in China beforehand. So I really fell into Chinese studies and it's like many things in our lives. Once we get uh, more involved in something, we become more interested and more interested, we become more excited, we learn more about it and it, it just went on from there. And when I left university, I became a journalist and worked in Britain for um, five or six years, but always with a view to at some point going back to China. And I, I did. I worked at the China Daily for a little while as a, a polisher, a, an editor of uh, of uh, uh, the work. Propaganda. Well, <laughs> it is propaganda. It looks like a newspaper. Sure. It feels like a newspaper, but yet it is. It's essentially a propaganda tool for the Chinese government. But it offered a way through me and my uh, wife to kind of travel to China and, and get a feel for the place. And after that, I went to Taiwan and was a stringer for the BBC and other people and and then went back to China, studied Chinese and got a job with the BBC uh, as a correspondent in 2007. So that's how I ended up being a journalist um, uh, in China, quite briefly, really. 
oh, there's really no shame in having worked for the China Daily. I think a a lot of people who find their way to proper journalism start off, you know, polishing turds at a uh, propaganda organ. (laughs) Yeah, and it's it's a great place. You do get to understand Chinese life. It was a proper Chinese Danway, so you would understand the kind of way Chinese uh, business life was organized, obviously, before the kind of reforms and the opening up to the outside world and the people starting up their own businesses. This was a proper place. So you got really to understand a, a little bit of how Chinese people lived, how they worked, and what they thought of each other, how they organized themselves. So it, it certainly wasn't a wasted uh, uh, yeah. opportunity. I remember um, you mentioned the Roman Gardens. I used to live right up there, right right behind Roman Gardens at a place called Lanjiu Yuan. And so uh, it, it was a bit of nostalgia. Remember that, Jeremy? Yes, I do, indeed. The Roman gardens. Michael, um, w- what about the sort of propaganda side of the China Daily? W- what were your major takeaways from working at a, a party propaganda organ? Well, firstly, working as a foreigner there, a lot of it is unseen. So you're not involved in the processes it, which lead to the kind of selecting of stories and how they're written. My impression was, um, and I don't know what your guys' impression is, but that a lot of it is a self-censorship. People often in China, the, the line, nobody knows where the line is about what can and cannot be said. Maybe that's becoming a lot more clear under President Xi Jinping. But for many years, the line, it, it was difficult to know when you were crossing it. And I think the authorities did that deliberately because people naturally and necessarily to protect themselves would hold back and kind of not write nearly as much as they wanted to for fear of stepping over that line. I think that's very true. I, I think yeah, you're absolutely, absolutely on the mark there. You know, so so it was, you know, you know, people trying to want to avoid sensitive subjects, so perhaps sens- self-censoring more than the censors would do. So that was my takeaway. But as I said, it was also a kind of a great way to observe how people spoke to each other and the, the kind of issues of face. So, for example, you know, there would be a, a, a public ridiculing. So the, the kind of the day after the paper was published, it would, ev- it would be print put on the wall, pinned on the wall, and an editor would go through with a marker pen, you know, marking out um, big mistakes and and kind of corrections and areas which hadn't worked. And this was public. Everybody could see it, but nobody would actually talk to each other or it didn't seem to be in in personal, in face-to-face terms. So you'd never get an editor, say, bringing somebody in and saying, look, we should have done this better. It was all very public. It was kind of quite humiliating for reporters. And they would never (laughs) kind of, but they would never be told quite personally, you know, how to how to put it right. So it was a, a real education in terms of sort of like how Chinese people relate to each other uh, in that kind of environment. Jeremy, maybe we should rethink our, our, our humiliation policy at SubChina. I don't know. If, if <laughs> we don't daily... humiliate our, uh, ourselves enough, you mean. Yeah, public humili- humiliation. <laughs> it's, uh... it's, it's one one's management strategy, that's for sure. Um, Michael, what was the intended uh, readership of this book? Um, it strikes me as a very engaging read that would work very well as a, an introduction for someone who hasn't had a great deal of exposure to China. It introduces a number of events and people who made news during your time as a journalist there and some of the historical background. Um, was that the idea of the book? Yes, it was really. Um, I, I mean, to anybody who knows China in great depth, perhaps the uh, ideas and themes and the kind of stories that I tell in the book might not come as too much of a, a surprise. Obviously, the teacher's story is slightly different and it gave me a slightly different angle on what was going on in China. Um but, yeah, it was intended for a, a more general readership. I mean, there are lots of books about China. It is a very serious place where 
people treat it very seriously, politicians, business people. There are lots of books about the economy. And if you talk to people in Europe, in America, we all know about the Chinese economy and its effect on us, the cheap goods, the investment opportunities, its rising power, how that's going to use that. So there's a lot of seriousness when it comes to China. But there's also a kind of a lot of humour, which I sometimes feel gets missed, um, and the kind of the ordinariness of kind of living in China and what people feel and think um, sometimes gets missed as well. And I wanted to introduce that to a, a kind of a general readership, someone who has a, an interest about China, but might not want to li- read a scholarly book about it or, or no, want to know the whole twists and turns of the kind of workings of the Standing Committee of the Politburo. Somebody might just want a general handle on what it feels like to be in China or to what China is like at this particular point in time. Yeah, and I think it very much succeeds on that level. It does cover a lot of the major stories that happened, you know, in your in your tenure there. And boy, I mean, you were there during some pretty eventful times. I mean, if you started at the deep the Bebit in 2007, I mean, you had the whole Oh my God! The Olympics run up. The Olympics. Olympics. There was the right, Tibet yeah. uh, unrest. Uh, Xinjiang, Boshilai. Xinjiang, Boshilai. Um, you had yeah, and then like you you visited with uh, you you tried to track down Gao Zhisheng and Hu Jia after both of them you know disappeared respectively. You tried to make your way to Chen Guangcheng's hometown in Shandong, and but but you also include like you said I think a lot of I'd call it you know quotidian color. Just sort of the, the the detail of ordinary life, and I think that fleshes it out very nicely. Uh, the the hook, obviously, though, is is the teacher and his transvestism. Um, and you say you would have written it, irrespective of the fact that you know you came out into that hallway one night before dinner and and and, Shangha and Sam dressed as a woman. Um, let's talk about him, though. He's 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 sort of meant as an everyman, uh, and you do use his life experiences, you know, as you said, as a kind of vehicle to tell a story of China. And yeah, he's had it all, the whole cultural revolution struggles and, and uh, the sent down to the countryside. Uh, but as a, a man who cross-dresses in at least one significant aspect of his life, he's just not at all representative. Uh, you know, much more interesting for it, I would say. Uh, but how do you square this, the every man and the fascinating exception in, in telling, talking about this character? I suppose, I mean, this is obviously my personal view um, uh, and other people have different opinions, but... Being a cross-dresser is kind of one part of this teacher's life. It's not the whole part of his life. He's married. He's got a child. He's um, had a career. Um, he's got friends. He goes out. He watches films. He does all kinds of things. And I wanted to kind of put this cross-dressing in context of his whole life. Quite often when we talk about minority issues and sexual minorities or gender minorities, you know, we focus on on kind of perhaps rightly on 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 those particular issues um i didn't want that issue to kind of overwhelm uh, everything else about the teacher because to him it's one part of his life he has a hold all bag which he, in which he keeps um lots of his clothes his his women's clothes which he keeps locked away in the boot of his car in this hold all which he takes out occasionally and at other parts of his life that's all locked away and I wanted to reflect that a little bit I didn't want the kind of cross-dressing to become too much uh, a part of um, 
what the story was about because ultimately I feel that that's what all people of whatever whatever minority or whatever um, however you deviate from the norm whatever however you want to express yourself you just want to be able to express it in a normal way and be accepted for that without being treated as as kind of weird or odd or out of the ordinary and so I wanted the book to kind of reflect that idea. Do you think that, Michael, do you think that Chinese people are, are somewhat better at compartmentalizing their lives uh, in, in that way than, than Westerners may be? Because it strikes me as a feature of social life in China, you know, and I include myself in this in my, you know, behavior living in, in China for 20 years, that I, I, I feel as though a lot of people develop an ability to shut off certain parts of their life from their family or from their friends or from their business associates. Um, does that make any sense? It does make sense, yeah, it, it does make sense. I, I feel Chinese people the most practical, I mean, I know that it's a kind of generalisation and I don't like generalisations, but perhaps the most practical people I've ever met. You know, how how is it that you can have Taoism and Confucianism and, and Buddhism and Christianity and all these kind of things kind of rolling up against each other and and, and they don't seem to bring about the contradictions that you might think would arise in, say, Western society. You know, so, so they, people can seem to believe different things. And, and as I think I come in, uh, talk about in the book, uh, the teacher was a very practical person. He, he wouldn't, you know, he could believe one thing one minute and another thing another, and he would take on board uh, one thing that seemed to come from a different philosophical school and another thing from a completely different area of life and and they all seemed to fit together as long as they were useful to him as though they as long as they served a purpose because he was trying to live a life the best he could and he wasn't going to get hung up about hypocrisies or sort of um you know doing one thing one day and another thing another day so yeah it does make sense they're very practical people i feel and that's why they're able to kind of cope with so much that's gone on uh, in recent history and, and, and accept and get on with it. Mm. Anyway, um, I, I, Michael, the, the teacher initially had huge misgivings about you even talking about his cross-dressing. How did he come around to it and how did you arrive at the compromise that allowed you to go ahead with the book? Which is basically that you didn't use his name, right? That That's that's the essence of of. of of the book, yeah, he, he allowed me eventually to talk about his cross-dressing. I mean, initially, I was quite uh, angry because as soon as he revealed the fact that he was a cross-dresser, I suspect that he would perhaps want to keep that semi-secret uh, existence a, a, a semi-secret. And and initially, I so I asked him on that first night. I said, "Look, you know, I'm writing a book. We're traveling around China. You're dressed as a woman. It has a reaction. I'm going to have to write about this because if I don't write about it, then it just won't be honest enough." And he said, "Look, I'm going to have to think about it." So he thought about it, and a couple of weeks later, I plucked up enough courage to speak to him about it again. We were on a train and we are kind of relaxing. We'd had a dinner and he said, look, I, I don't want you to, to mention the cross-dressing because even, you know, it's, it's going to be in English, but it might be translated. There's the internet now. People, it might come back onto me. And, and when he said that, I was quite angry because I thought, well, why bother, you know, going through all this in the first place? Just tell me. And I would have said, fine, okay, I respect your right to privacy. Let's not do the book. I'll, I'll think of something else to write or abandon the project altogether. So I was a little angry with him. And, and, and then afterwards, I, I kind of tried to persuade him you know, not too hard, but I just said, look, 
we've done all this work already. We'll have wasted this time. You know, I can't write about it, you know, if you don't let me mention um, the cross-dressing. I use the example of me going around uh, China with someone who is black. And as you know, there were very few black people in China and they always elicit a response Um Sometimes not a very nice response, but certainly there would be something there that, you know, if you were writing about traveling with someone who was black, you would have to mention that person's color uh, because once again, it wouldn't be honest enough. He seemed to understand that and he seemed to come to a quick conclusion that I could um, mention his cross-dressing as long as I didn't identify him or, you know, kind of give any information which would uh, lead to his identification. So I, I and I, I've spoken to him since writing the book and, and since the book was going to be published. And I said to him again, look, you know, I'm writing this book. It's going to be published. We're talking about your cross-dressing, giving him the opportunity once again to pull back. I would have been pretty disappointed if at that point he had said he didn't want the book <laughs> published. But I did give him the opportunity and he did say, look, fine, good luck. So I think perhaps somewhere deep down, he wants to reveal himself to, to a kind of a wider audience. This is who he is. He enjoys wearing women's clothes. Why should he not uh, show that to a wider audience? Does his wife know, Michael? His wife knows, but doesn't approve. I haven't talked to him in detail recently about that, but at the time I've spoken to him and, and, and kind of re- fairly recently, his wife did know, but doesn't really approve. Whenever I met him with his wife, he was always dressed as a man. He never talked about his cross-dressing. And I think it was, as you were talking earlier, uh, Jeremy, about compartmentalization of your life. I think that's what he did. She was knew about it, but didn't want anything really to do about it. So he kept it uh, away from her. And you never really talked to her individually? You never talked to her separately from him? I didn't. She was quite a, not a frightening woman, but, you know, quite a strident <laughs> woman. And and also, this, as I say, the kind of limits between friendships. I didn't want, he, I could tell by when I, in my conversations with him, that he was reticent about what his wife knew and his relationship with his wife and his cross-dressing. So I didn't want to kind of trample over that friendship or enter an area where I wasn't welcome. You know, he... He would have, you know, worn women's clothes in front of his wife. That would have been a different issue. I would have brought it up then. What do you think about it? But because he didn't do that, and it was quite clear that he he was uncomfortable cross-dressing in front of his wife, I didn't feel it was my place to bring that issue up. Michael, was the teacher introspective at all about his his own predilection for women's clothing? How aware of or, or how interested was he in transvestism, gender bending, all that more broadly LGBTQ culture in the West. Uh, was that something that he asked you about often? And, and was it something that you felt like you could help him to get a better understanding of? Not very much, to be perfectly honest. I think because by the time I'd met him, he'd been a cross well, he'd been cross-dressing all his life, but he'd been uh, publicly doing it since about the year 2000, broadly speaking, when the internet became very popular in China and he'd searched the internet. Up to that point, he'd been very depressed because he thought he'd been alone. Suddenly the internet comes along, he searches for people like him, he finds them, he finds a sense of kind of belonging to a group, he kind of went to clubs, um, he met 
all the cross-dressers. He had friends who uh. were cross-dressers. So th this was a kind of important part of his life. By the time I came into his life and he revealed his cross-dressing to me, he'd already come to terms with it and he, he already had an established life. Um, and so he didn't really need me uh, to, to kind of do that. And all, also he's quite a confident about himself and who he was. Whenever we were out cross-dressing, he never hid himself. Even kind of, you know, walking through a Chinese city street, he would be very confident about who he was. Later on, you mentioned the wig earlier, Kaiser. He, he wore wigs later on. He would show me kind of his wigs lined up in his hotel and his makeup. And he was very proud of who he was. I remember once walking down the street, he shouted out to a kind of a guy who would, uh, who owned a restaurant. We ate in the restaurant the night before. He said, do I look pretty? Uh, you know, kind of showing off. He was, he was a, a great <laughs> extrovert. He wanted people to see him dressed as a woman. He didn't mind it. And why should he? And his personality changed a lot when he was in drag, right? He did, yes. I mean, his, he yeah, did, yeah. yeah. He, he became far softer. He, I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but, you know, he would toss his head from side to side, you know, throw his hair back. He had a kind of very feminine walk. He always kind of meant he always struggled on high heels. He said he always said he felt more comfortable in high heels than in flat <laughs> men's shoes. But I have to see him walk, and I don't believe it really. But he loved to walk in in kind of women's high heels. He loved to dress up, um, and yeah, you know, he, he kind of felt comfortable like that. Michael, how would you characterize Chinese attitudes about transvestism? Are they, are they separate from or part and parcel of broader attitudes towards anything that's not hetero and cis normative, I believe, are the, of the, the words that one uses now? Yeah, I mean, I think the conservatism, which, I mean, this is once again, it's my personal opinion and just, you know, other people have different opinions, but the kind of social conservatism that exists still in Chinese society is to many respects kind of invented by the communists. You know, when they came into power, one of their kind of great things they did, they kind of, you know, kind of cleaned up all those flesh pots, you know, Shanghai, Tianjin, wherever, all these kind of treaty ports where where Western debauchery had taken hold. And so they were very socially conservative people, but they kind of, you know, uh, swept away a kind of quite a tolerant uh, tradition uh, in Chinese culture. I, I don't think, I'm not an expert in, in kind of Taoism and Confucianism, but I don't think they have a lot to say about the morality, sexual morality, as much as, say, a, a Christ, the Christian tradition in the West has to say where we would, and people still look at, uh, some aspects of people's behavior and see it as sinful. I don't think they, traditionally Chinese people have that same idea. That makes sense to me. I mean, I think the Westerners didn't actually bring the flesh pots. They brought the Puritanism. Y yeah, I agree. And, and, and that was adopted by the communists. And, and whenever we traveled around China, you know, with the teacher dressed as, as a woman, I, I never met any anger or, or potential violence. Now, if I was in, even in London... And I was walking around with someone who's a cross-dresser, let alone going back to my hometown in the north of England where attitudes aren't quite as um, advanced. Going throughout, around some of these places, I would be slightly cautious that we would bump into people who might not like what the teacher was wearing and might take offence at that. In China, that never happened. And all credit to Chinese people for that. Do do you think attitudes are changing or becoming reverting to a, a form of tolerance? Then I mean, now we have Jin Xing, uh, who's uh, I think 
China's most famous transgender woman, uh, the dancer and choreographer. She's on TV practically every day on one of the most popular shows. Um, I mean, do you think uh, there's a shift in tolerance? I do. There was a, a survey done by, was well, sponsored by the UN Peking University in Beijing LGBT Centre last year, which, which kind of had a mixed picture. It sort of like said people were still uh, sexual minorities, gender minorities, these groups of people still feel fearful about revealing themselves who they are in public, just one in 20 feel confident enough to do that. Um, but also this report said that actually Chinese society in general is moving towards more acceptance and tolerance and a kind of uh, gender equality and same-sex marriages are kind of it's not there in China yet, but it, it, it's an issue which is which is certainly talked about. Earlier this year, we had the um, Supreme Court in Taiwan, a kind of place which is a, a, a great Chinese uh, culture and essentially Chinese people. I know that you could argue that they're Taiwanese, but that's a nationality issue rather than an ethnic issue. You know, in Taiwan, where they've the the Supreme Court has decided to kind of that same sex marriage is illegal. You see, there some of the Chinese attitudes are very accepting. So I I, I think Chinese people generally are quite accepting and, and moving towards that. In some respects, rediscovering their tolerant past, which was obscured by the communists. Yeah, I certainly agree. That matches with what I've observed in Chinese society. Was the teacher interested in the activism on behalf of the LGBTQ community? Was he up on what was happening with groups who were active in, in working to promote gay and queer and lesbian and, 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 and uh, bisexual rights? No, is the simple answer. He never spoke to me uh. about it. He never indicated he was interested in that. I mean, you've got to remember this man is now in his 60s. He's lived a right. long life. He's done a lot of things and been through a lot of hardships. Um, and the final hurdle I felt that he had to overcome was kind of finding a place for his cross-dressing. And once he realized that there were people like him, he was just seemed to me to be happy with that situation. I think had he been a younger person, other issues would have presented themselves. So, for example, you know, he was retired. He had enough money to live on. He could cross-dress whenever he wanted and when he didn't want to he didn't have to but had he wanted had he been younger he might have felt he wanted to go to work wearing women's clothes that might have presented difficult more difficulties you know that perhaps wouldn't have been accepted that perhaps would have drawn him into activism and we've seen there's been a number of legal cases where people have tried to kind of assert their what they feel is their right to go to work in China uh, uh, dressed as they see fit and so perhaps if he'd have been younger and these issues are kind of jarred with the way he lived his life he would have been drawn into activism most but more than he was but you know when I met him as I said he, he kind of retired so he he was just happy to kind of be himself and happy he could be himself. Michael, I meant to ask you earlier, has he actually read the book now? He hasn't, and I'm hoping he does. He doesn't speak English, so right. he would have difficulty reading the book, but I'm hoping um, I might get translated. Uh, certainly, I, w I will have to sort of like, you know, go go to China pretty soon, hopefully, and, and kind of talk to him about him and, 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 go, and go through the book with him. That, that's something that, that kind of I have to do pretty, pretty soon. We, we talked about how the teacher is really, you know, very representational, uh, 
that he he does kind of embody the, the zeitgeist. And one of the ways that I really noticed that he does represent that very well is that he gets bitten by the entrepreneurial bug. Um, can you talk about his business ideas and how, like so many of mine, it too failed? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things I loved about the teacher because whenever I would sort of like have something I was working on, say, at the BBC, you know, you'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I've, I've, uh, I know something about that or I know somebody who did that or you'd have a, you already have a story and, and he kind of have these stories like just he'd pick them out of his pocket and, you know, so we'd talk about businesses and he would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, actually, the, the, the business one, I, I found out about it because I was going to, I arrived at our lesson one day and he'd already arrived and he was sat at a desk and he was kind of holding this piece of paper and he had a, a list of items for sale uh, on this list. So I said to him, well, what's that then? You know, yeah, it's a karaoke machine. What are you selling a karaoke machine for? And so then he told me about this kind of homestay business that he'd started up to the south of Beijing, just outside uh, of the city. Now, homestays, for those who don't know them, are, are sort of like places which became very popular while I was uh, in Beijing, where people would leave the city on a weekend and they would go to the countryside, they would maybe pick vegetables, they would eat kind of what they thought was was as kind of cleaner food, more healthy food, they would get out to the mountain air, they would kind of shake down the dust of the city and, and just kind of enjoy themselves and relax. And the teacher had seen this and he'd tried to kind of open his own. Uh, unfortunately, he'd done it to the south of Beijing, which is not nearly <laughs> as pretty as the north with the mountains and kind of the Great Wall snaking over the mountains. It's really, I mean, obviously, you've been there. You, you, it's kind of a really... The, the flat wastelands between Beijing and Tianjin, essentially. <laughs> exactly. So oh, we gosh. went out, we, kind of, we, we drove to this place. And I could tell I was getting kind of quite depressed. There was a smog hanging over. There were kind of workshops and motorways. And I thought, why on earth would he kind of open a place in this place? And then we, we kind of got to this place and it was, it was in the process of falling down you know in kind of china where when they build a wall the kind of <laughs> the cement is never sort of like you know done neatly and there's kind of holes between the bricks and it looks just awful and then i notice hang on that's a coffin maker next to this place where you'd open a place where people are going to come and relax and entertain themselves you know Surely you realise Chinese people are probably one of the most superstitious people on earth. You know, and anything associated with death or dying is a complete taboo, isn't it? Why on earth did you possibly feel that this would would go ahead? And, you know, he just said, well, you know, this was the only place that my kind of relative who I was opening it with had available and just kind of laughed. But it, it summed him up. It, he wasn't a businessman. He, he kind of considered himself a bit of a, an intellectual. He, I think he went into business just to kind of, just for the fun of it, just for the people he would meet, because he was a great raconteur. He still is a great raconteur, you know, talking to people and meeting different people and, you know, just sat down talking hours on end. And that's probably why he opened the business in the first place. Well, that makes sense. I think uh, in some ways that's the best motive for opening a business in China is <laughs> for fun because <laughs> profit is much more difficult to attain. You know, and he wanted me to go. We, we kind of went to this business and he, we, we looked at the building, nothing much to see, but he wanted to go and visit the woman who'd been he'd employed as a cook. And she was a great character, you know, and, and it kind of uh, there was a scene in, in the book and I, I think it's important. I wanted to show this scene because it's important. You you would have some of the most fantastic meals in China in the most inauspicious venues. You know, and this, this woman was cooking a meal and she had a kind of a chopping board, a chopper and a kind of a, a, a ring with a, with a wok on and it's kind of a... a 
rubber hose leading to a gas cylinder and you know it looked the worst place possible to prepare food and there she did prepare this meal for workmen at this workplace she was working at and it just kind of reminded me of all the fantastic food I'd had in 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 China and, and and when you come to London you go to some fantastically smart restaurants that look so chic and then you go in and the food's just really average <laughs> and just kind of it's so depressing yeah no that that you, China ruins you in that way you no longer care that much about the decor <laughs> it's just the food um Michael I'd like to ask you about something that's not actually in the book but that you could perhaps talk about um the last few years um since you've been back from China have seen what some consider a fairly um, unseemly kowtowing by the British government to Beijing in the pre-Brexit days when Cameron was still Prime Minister. Xi Jinping's state visit was said by various government spokespeople and private sector business people to be the beginning of a a so-called golden era in Sino-British relations. That was uh, just two years ago um, in October um, uh, 2015. And I mean, since then, the country, Britain, seems like America to have been excited by... Uh, some kind of animal spirits and uh, xenophobic uh, ideas, uh, which certainly seems to be one factor in the yes vote to Brexit in 2016. How does the golden era of Sino-British relations look now in 2017 in September? And what are the chattering classes saying about China in, in, in London? Well, I think the first thing to understand is that, you know, America has always been more serious about China than Britain. Um and so, so, so that's one thing. So, 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 I kind of Britain's disengagement with with kind of China, say, over issues such as Hong Kong, doesn't really come as a surprise because whenever that's we're more kind of concerned about our own place in Europe over the last few years than looking towards China. But yeah, you're right to talk about this golden age. In fact, I've just been to an event this evening where I've kind of listened to a speech by the Chinese ambassador to Britain, Liu Xiaoming, talking just about that, the kind of golden age and how it's building momentum. He was at a function where there was a university building ties with a Fudan University in Shanghai. Um, and so for some people, this is still this is still a kind of burning issue. But I feel that the it's an unequal partnership. China knows that Britain leaving Europe, it's going to need all the friends it can. It's going to need all the trading partners it can. And China is in a good bargaining position um, and it knows that. So it doesn't have to kind of push that hard. So it's a kind of quite a desperate and a, and a sad situation in some respects to see Britain um, diminished really in the eyes of China and, and as a kind of relationship. I did a report recently to kind of mark the 20th uh, anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong back to China from Britain and I spoke to one of the uh, well, the chief diplomat involved in the negotiations, the chief British diplomat involved in negotiations with China 20 years ago and he said there's absolutely no way we would have able to have negotiated the deal we got for Hong Kong then now because we're just so much more diminished. I, I recall a Global Times opinion piece uh, a few years ago that said something along the lines of Britain is a small country of interest for tourism and educating our children, but not much else, <laughs> which <laughs> seemed to sum up the, the new uh, dismissive attitude. To, it is. It's, it's uh, a style place, really. Britain, the kind of this idea of Victorian Britain and the kind of gentleman uh, clubs and, and this kind of this idea of, of Britain is, is why I think a lot of kind of 
Chinese parents send their kids to Britain to study because they think they're getting this kind of classical uh, British education. Um, I mean, to a certain extent, that's just kind of smoke and mirrors. It's, it's a Britain which doesn't exist, but it, it's uh, Shh, certainly don't tell anybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's certainly benefiting the uh, education industry in Britain. I mean, it's kind of one of our biggest biggest earners. I mean, Xi Jinping may bang on about his commitments to globalism, but the truth is China would rather deal with a fractured Europe. They'd rather deal individually, uh, bilaterally with countries rather than with the EU. And so while nominally they they were pro-Remain, I think uh, there were probably a few people who smiled at, at the outcome last summer. With Brexit, yeah, they're definitely. I'm, I'm sure, actually, China's probably happy at our slight discomfort. Uh, I mean, actually, this event I went to this evening, I, I also met a Swiss diplomat who said he'd met some Chinese officials, really, and he said they were okay. He was surprised because they were really nonplussed about Britain leaving uh, the European Union, and they were just kind of quite relaxed about it. Well, I said they they will be, won't they? Because they know that we need them more than they need us, and uh, that's just the dynamics at the moment. Michael, as, as a podcaster, I have the last general question about the BBC and its fate. In, in 2011, I think it was, the BBC World Service stopped Mandarin broadcasts. But the Chinese news website seems to have expanded, actually. And you know, it's a pretty decent source of news in, in Chinese about the world. Uh, I noticed, though, that the BBC also launched a West African pigeon news site. Uh, so where do you think the BBC is going with its foreign language coverage? And, and how important is, is China and the Chinese language news going to be toward you know in in the organization's uh, concerns going forward well I'll deal with your last question first the thing about China China is extremely important and although they stopped the world service BBC world service stopped broadcasting in radio in Mandarin they have this kind of website which you've which you've seen and and they're committed to it it's it's part of the change the way people access news people just don't listen to radio quite as much as they did previously they access That's news sure. in other ways yeah. and so uh, the change to online is happening with a number of kind of language services here at the BBC the Vietnamese services another one the Chinese service Uh, as you just mentioned there. So certainly the BBC is committed. In actual fact, over the last few years, the government, as you've mentioned as well there with the the launch of the Pigeon Service, also uh, Korean Service, uh, which is just in the process of being launched at the moment, an entirely new service, you know, kind of they're launching a kind of few metres away from where I'm um, sitting talking to you now. Um, The BBC, the the government in Britain gave money to the BBC to kind of expand its language services across the world. Essentially, they realised that, you know, Britain's best way of promoting itself was this soft power. And, and Britain does still, for a kind of middling world power, still punch above its weight in terms of culture, um, in terms of soft power. People know about Britain, know about artists, musicians, the BBC World Service is a global brand and I kind of just the, the, the government and the BBC has realised that by telling the world what's going on in the world, that's a great gift. And, you know, I, I'm kind of proud actually to be part of that because it is what? to provide information to people out there. I'm very happy to hear that, actually. I, I, you know, I, I listen to BBC uh, uh, news uh, in the form of podcasts. And I mean, it remains a fantastic news organization that gives a lot greater depth and breadth than you get from, you know, even NPR in the United States. I mean, you know, if you're interested in Africa, like 
I am. Um, yeah, then listen it, in the middle it, of the night and you hear that terrific one. Right. Yeah. Great, great anyway. shows. I'm also really glad to see that the BBC has opened up to more than just received pronunciation so that we get voices like yours now, your, your, your funny northern vowels. Yeah, uh. that, that's, that's certainly the case. I mean, I can remember when I first started working at the BBC, um, this is about only about 10 years ago, I did a, um, a voiceover. So there was uh, Ariel Sharon, who was the Prime Minister of Israel at the time. And, of course, <laughs> uh, you, you can see where this story is going, can't you? But, um, you know, we had to do, obviously he spoke in e- Hebrew, and, um, you know, I had to do a voiceover as part of a sort of like a radio bulletin that was going out. And uh, when my voice sort of like came on air and I was in this kind of open plan newsroom, people started laughing yeah, because it was so ridiculous. Imagine. It was ridiculous that you would have a Northern, Northern English British voice uh, <laughs> on the BBC uh, and now people wouldn't do that as times have changed quite a lot. You know, there, there's room for all accents because out there in the real world, people speak in all different ways. And and thankfully, the BBC is working up to that. And they wear all sorts of different clothes. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to you know, share your stories about the teacher. Uh, again, the book is called China in Drag, Travels with a Crossdresser. And it's a very lively, very short and very readable book uh, that I would, I'd, I'd love it if, if we helped you move some copies off the shelves. That the would show, be good. But, uh, let's stick around. Let's make some recommendations. Yeah. Yep. I've got my recommendation ready. Oh, good. Well, before we get to that, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. You can follow SubChina on Facebook at facebook.com slash News, or, of course, on Twitter at, at SubChinaNews. Uh, Jeremy, let's kick it off. What do you have for us this week? Okay, it is the malamarket.com, M-A-L-A market.com, which is, if you're in the United States, a... Uh, Little business run by some friends of mine here in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, it's a mother-daughter combination. Uh, a Nashvillian who adopted a daughter from China who loves Sichuan food. Uh, because it's genetic. So it's genetic. I th- well, she was actually quite... She was 11 when she came to the United States. She wasn't ah, adopted okay. as a baby. So she already had a taste for good food. Um, and her mom learned to cook Sichuan food and is now selling really fine uh, Sichuan ingredients, you know, including uh, Sichuan peppers, hua uh, jiao, uh, and uh, all kinds of sauces and uh, little, you know, things you need to make various kinds of, uh, of Sichuan dishes. So it's the malamarket.com. They also have a blog, which I think they're changing the name of, but it's currently called the Mala Project, which is the same name as... Um, a, the, the, uh, the a restaurant, restaurant in, in New York in that New York. I rather like, um, which is also a recommendation, but I think I've made that one before. Finally, I would also like, you mentioned the BBC's new uh, West African Pigeon uh, news service. And I mean, I love West African Pigeon. I had a lot of Nigerian friends in Beijing, uh, and I've started reading the news in Pigeon, in pigeon occasionally, and it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a really wonderful experience to enjoy this form of English that is so different from uh, what was ever presented on the BBC previously. Great recommendation. Uh, I'll definitely uh, listen to that. Michael, what do you have for us? Well, I'm going to be very, very boring. I'm going to recommend a book that I've just read. Um, Apologies for that. But um, it's called A Whole Life, and it's by an author, an Austrian author, called Robert Seath Haller. Um, And it's just about... uh, 
It's just about um, an ordinary guy who lives in a valley in the Alps in Austria and nothing happens to him in, in his entire life or very little, very little that's noteworthy. And But he's kind of the... Um, essence of his life and the kind of he's lived a full and rich life by the end of it and it kind of reminds me a little bit of a book i don't know if you read it stoner that kind of uh, a lot of people in britain were reading it's by the uh, uh it's by the american author john williams it was rediscovered i think a few years ago about a midwestern um a midwestern a university aficionado of cannabis no <laughs> Yeah, so that's it's just kind of a book, and it chimes with my book a little bit because it's about somebody who's done seemingly nothing but lived a fantastic life, and um, I think that we all should learn a little bit of that. Uh, right, that's own the life. kind of book I'd be able to write. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kaiser. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna up boring you. I'm gonna I'm gonna do some gear. Uh, I I'm just loving the fact that there's so much good Chinese electronics gear out there on the market now you can buy it in the states uh my most recent acquisition was some was some amazing i'm having them in my ears right now even as we speak some in-ear monitors earbuds uh by a company called one more the number one m-o-r-e uh they're apparently part of the whole xiaomi family of tech gadgetry uh they're these triple driver earphones i don't know if that means anything to anyone but that means you know there's no. separate drivers for for the bass, the mid-range, and, and for the treble. They're just a huge step up from what you're probably using right now. I mean, just amazing clarity. And they're only like 95 bucks, unless you, you get the, the gold-colored ones, which are inexplicably like 50 bucks more. But um, Inexplicably? It's got gold on it. No, no, they're, they're gold-colored. <laughs> anyway, they also make this quad-driver model, which is a bit more pricey, but which I'm told is something that I'll, I'll have to move up to at some point. But these these are just amazing. I mean, I've been um, soliciting suggestions for really, really high-quality recordings to just sort of spin on these, irrespective of genre or musicianship, just for the quality of, of the production, you know, along lines of Steely Dan's Asia, uh, which, you know, I've been listening to a lot anyway after Walter Becker's untimely passing. So uh, yeah, they're great, great headphones, just amazing. So Michael... Thanks uh, once more for joining us on Seneca. It was a lot of fun talking to you, and and thanks thanks so much for turning us on to the book. Yeah, thanks for thanks for interviewing me. Yeah, best of luck with it too, Jeremy. Good to talk to you, man. Yes, likewise. Thank you, Kaiser. Thanks, Michael. Enjoy the rest of your holiday. The Seneca podcast is powered by Sub China and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks as always to Anne Le Chang and to Soraya Darabi from Sub China. Drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash subchina news and follow us on twitter at subchina news thanks for listening and we will see you next week take care